thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. I thought this was sci-fi until I looked at the top of my header. Um, pardon the pun on the first part of the word head. Um, the world's first human head transplant. Well, it hasn't been done quite yet on a live person, but this is a report that oh, came out last month, and this is actually practising the procedure on a cadaveric donor. So this is the, the work that scientists in a number of countries have been looking at, whether it's possible to move a head from one individual to a new body. Now, there are a number of practical aspects to this. One of them is that if your body claps out but your brain is good, then obviously you'd be losing your entire being for the sake of a clapped-out body. So if you could get a new one, then potentially you'd give a new lease of life to the head. Now, there, there are some problems, though which is that whilst it's possible to reconnect the blood vessels, and that's critical because the brain has one of the highest metabolic rates in the body, it needs about 20% of the oxygen that you, you use in any one moment to go straight into the brain to supply it, the thing that you can't do is reconnect the nerves to the rest of the body. So although you could get the head off and you could connect it onto a new body and you could replumb in the blood supply and that would keep the brain alive so the person would therefore be conscious potentially, what you can't do is to make the spinal cord, which is the connection between the brain and the rest of your body, reconnect. Because when you damage the central nervous system, which you'd have to do, you'd have to sever the spinal cord to get the head off the body, it would be very difficult indeed to actually give that person any quality of life because the nerve connections between the brain going out down the spinal cord so you could move, they would be lost. The sensations flowing into the spinal cord from the skin and then up to the brain they would be lost. So that the person would effectively have a sort of locked-in syndrome. They might be able to move their face, they might be able to move their eyes, they might be able to see. But other than that, they wouldn't be able to do anything. So doctors are interested in doing this as perhaps a stopgap. But until we solve the problem of how to make the central nervous system repair itself, then this really does remain very much rooted in the realms of science fiction. Well, that's quite apart from all the ethical questions that ethicists will pose and the philosophical ones about person. It sounds very fascinating, a story that will turn heads. Philip, good morning. Good morning, Eusebius. Uh, I just want to ask a naked scientist, when birds fly, you never see birds dropping out of the sky. So does it mean that birds don't, they don't die while they, while they fly or do they have to sit down to physically <laughs> die because you never see them dying in the air? You never see them dying in flight. Hello, Philip. But it's a very it's a very important observation, and uh, and I salute you for for thinking about this scientifically. The answer is that uh, flight is a very metabolically demanding process, and so a bird has to feel in pretty good condition before it's wanting to fly anyway, because birds are aware of the danger. I mean, if they're flying and they're taken ill that would be bad for their health. So a bird that's not feeling very well tends to retreat to its roost and sit there and feel sorry for itself. It's not going to want to fly unless it absolutely has to. So that's probably the reason. But it does happen because, of course, there are some birds on Earth. The tern, for example, makes a lifetime series of migrations that tot up to 
journeys to the moon and back in terms of the distance it flies. So some birds spend almost all their time flying, so inevitably if something happens to one of those, they will just drop out of the sky and die. But the, the amount of time as a proportion that they spend flying compared to roosting if they're not feeling well means that on average they're going to die on their perch rather than dying dropping out of the sky. But it does happen. Azania wants to know on the SMS line, why does the human heart not get cancer? And are there any other organs that are not susceptible to malignancy? Well, actually, the human heart can get cancer and you can get a condition called an atrial myxoma. It's rare, it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And it happens often enough that uh, doctors know about it. So pretty much every organ in your body is made of cells and those cells contain DNA. Cancer is a genetic disorder, so if you damage DNA, then you can cause cells to begin to disobey the normal constraints on how they grow and how they arrest their growth and if they start to disobey those constraints and uh, they don't control their growth they can turn into a cancer which is what effectively happens in any organ so therefore any part of your body can become cancerous the organs that tend to be or the tissues that tend to be most susceptible to cancer are those that have cells growing very fast or being injured a lot and having to repair themselves very fast or are susceptible to or exposed to things that cause cancer, carcinogens, things like skin being exposed to ultraviolet that can damage your DNA, or uh, something in your diet that damages your liver and keeps on damaging your liver, like alcohol, that makes you become cirrhotic, and the cirrhosis then is a risk factor for getting cancer. So the heart can definitely get cancer, but the heart's made of non-dividing tissue, muscle cells, therefore it's lower susceptibility to cancer, but it can definitely happen. Vic, you have a question that is almost literally a cool question. <laughs> Thank you, Sylvius. And uh, my question is, if you have a mint sweet in your mouth and you drink water, let's say tap water, it seems as cool as the one that comes from the fridge. <laughs> what is the reason for that? We've got some cool questions today, Chris. And you've got some cool jokes or some good one-liners anyway. <laughs> it's a succession of them. I'm wondering what's going to come next. Thank you. <laughs> This is another excellent observation. Thank you, Vic, for this. The reason for this, mint contains various chemicals, including menthols, and these bind to a specific target on nerve cells in your mouth. This target is called TRIP-M8, and this sits on the surface of a nerve cell, and when it sees chemicals in mint, it opens pores on the surface of the nerve cell and these pores allow charged particles to go into and change the activity of the nerve cell. The nerve cells that they target specifically are those cells that detect temperature and when you activate this TRIP-M8 ion channel or pore it triggers that nerve cell to tell the brain I am experiencing a cold sensation. So when you put a mint in your mouth, even though the temperature hasn't changed, it triggers the nervous system to think the temperature has changed. And therefore, if you put cold water into your mouth, even though the water isn't very cold, the nerves are now responding as though the water were much colder than it really is. So you get the distinct impression that you're drinking something very cold, even though you're not. And the reverse effect of this is hot chilli pepper. When you take capsaicin into your mouth, which is what the uh, ingredient is in chilies that causes the burning sensation, this activates another channel called TRIP-V1, which is on the cells that, or the nerve fibres that sense pain and temperature, heat specifically. That fools your mouth into thinking it's hotter than it really is, which is why if you then drink a, a warm drink, actually it feels excruciatingly hot, 
because your nerves are now more sensitised to high temperatures. So these two effects are sort of diametrically opposed. Trip M8 in menthol and mint makes you feel colder than you really are, so cold things feel colder than they really are. Trip V1 in chilli makes hot things feel hotter than they really are. In both cases, though, if you put a thermometer in the mouth, and we've done this experiment on the Naked Scientist, the temperature has not changed. It's just your perception of the temperature and your sensitivity to temperature that has. And Jabula wants to know on the SMS line if there's a scientific reason, Chris, why a cockroach faces upwards when it dies. I think probably... Uh, and I don't know the answer to this, but I, I suspect that what he means is, why do you find cockroaches lying on their back with their legs in the air? I think this comes down to just a stability thing. Um, when a cockroach is about to peg out, then it doesn't just sort of suddenly stop moving and die in situ. It struggles for a while and tries to keep going, but half its body doesn't move, its legs don't work properly. And because it's not producing coordinated movements, it's quite likely that it'll move on one side, not the other, and end up flipping itself on its back. And this means that then it sits on its back and that's a very stable position to be in because the the shell of the back of a cockroach is a nice smooth round surface to lie on. So the cockroach is more likely to end up in that position. Also, it might get rigor mortis as it dies and this is where some of the muscles stiffen and extend and so it might happen on one side of the body before the other and that asymmetric force flips the cockroach over. But then again, once it's lying on its back, that's a very stable configuration. So there's nothing now, no other legs, no other movements that are going to ping it back the other way. So you're more likely to find them pegged out dead on their back than sitting on their legs. Mary, what is your question? I just want to, I believe it was answered, but I didn't hear it. Uh, what causes a twitching eye? And okay. I also have a second question. Can I ask that? No, there are too many. We'll take your first one for today, Mary. <laughs> oh, you're being a hard taskmaster today, Eusebius. What causes a flickering eye? Well, we've all had this. When usually you're stressed or tired or you've got other things that you'd rather be thinking about, and this irritating muscle twitch happens on one side of your eye and and it's so excruciatingly annoying because it's intrusive it gets in the way of you're trying to look at someone and you know your eye is twitching you're trying to talk at a conference or something your eye is twitching the reason this happens is because muscles respond to activity in nerve cells and in your spinal cord and in your brain stem there are motor nerves those motor nerves send nerves out into the skin and then into the muscles underneath and the muscles have different muscle fibres. And a nerve cell talks to a squad or group of muscle fibres called a motor unit. Impulses come down the motor nerve, trigger the muscle to contract, and normally the entire population of or a large group of nerve cells that supply most of a muscle turn on and make that muscle contract in unison. So you get a coordinated movement of a muscle. Now, when you get these twitches, what's happening is that just the odd motor nerve cell, instead of the whole squad of them, turn on. Some aberrant impulses come down the nerve and they make the muscle respond a bit and it twitches. And it can happen usually when you're very tired, usually when you're stressed or when you've had too much coffee because caffeine potentiates the action of adrenaline, one of the the excitement hormones, and this therefore makes you more likely to feel stressed if you've had too much coffee. And this produces these aberrant nerve discharges. You can also get this if your biochemistry has gone off a bit. Um, Chemicals like sodium and potassium and calcium are very important for the way that both the nervous system 
and your muscles work. And if the levels of those aren't quite right in the blood, it can make it happen or more likely to happen. But it's much rarer for those things to go wrong than for you to have sleep deprivation or stress or too much coffee, which are the commonest causes. The good news is it's not harmful in the long term. The odd twitchy muscle happens to everybody, happens often, easily remedied by not doing the things I've said above. So bit less stress, bit less coffee, get some rest, it will go away. It's just very irritating when it's happening. Ladies and naked scientists, uh, Louis, is it Louise? Hi, welcome. Good uh, morning. Um, I just want to know um, about, I had a prosthesis done six years ago, and I formed the small sockets with small hips, but they put the large one in. And I was in a lot of pain, so I went back to another doctor, and he put the scan on and he found that the prosthesis was rubbing against the tendon. They did a revision, but not a complete one. They couldn't take it out. So I've had a lot of pain for six years. Um, I want to know if they did an MRI scan and they found that the, the muscles were damaged. So I want to know if I do exercises, will that help build up the muscle? Okay, Chris, can you help? Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your predicament. Normally, when we sort things out with hips, then it's probably one of the most successful operations that, apart from cataract surgery, that a doctor can do because we we do hip replacements to relieve chronic pain and we restore mobility and quality of life to people all over the world in the medical practice by doing this. So it's a real shame that it hasn't quite worked out for you, but it sounds like your case might have been a little bit more complicated. That This is an issue that uh, when you need to revise surgery, it can be a lot more tricky the second time. When you go into a pristine environment and put a prosthesis in, it's much easier to work with than when you have to revise things because when you have to revise things, you're dealing with um, having to get the uh, initial revision out, there's scar tissue, there's also other changes that have reactively happened in the area and surgeons have to cope with all that. The surgeons are a bright bunch and they should be able to work this out for you. I, I would certainly seek an additional opinion. But usually if you have got some muscle wasting or muscle damage, physiotherapy is critical because you can build up muscles and stabilise the, the joint with strong muscles and this will maximise your potential to remain active. But I would, I would certainly get an additional opinion, but, but physiotherapy and remaining active is critical because the more muscles um, strength you have, that you will retain that strength, but also the range of movement. And that's critical too, because in order to, to actually have good quality of life, you need a good range of movement on the joint. And making sure you're able to stay active is, is going to ensure that happens. Thank you, Louise. Let's go to Greenpoint. Tim. Hi, Chris. Whenever we watch a documentary and people are in a submarine deep in the ocean, they always explain the water pressure. What would happen in theory if you took a human body to those deaths, um, would it just become paper thin? Well, remember that your body is actually full of water. Um, 60-70% of your body mass is water. So we're a big bag of water, but we've also got other bits inside us that contain gas, like your uh, lungs, for example. So when you're subject to extreme pressure, then a number of things happen, but you certainly wouldn't shrink and implode like a submarine. The reason a submarine implodes if it suddenly catastrophically fails at depth is because it is a steel or metal shell around a whole load of air which has got the people in it, and it's the uh, crushing of that air that causes the problem. The human body would still exist, and it wouldn't shrink catastrophically under those pressures, but other things would happen. When you have excruciating pressure on your tissues... 
Things happen to gas. So you would drive enormous amounts of gas into solution in your bloodstream. And that's why divers get the bends if they stay down too long and certain resurface too quickly because lots of nitrogen gets dissolved in the tissues and the blood. That's a bad thing. But the other thing that happens is that under these exquisite pressures, proteins in your body actually change shape and water is driven into the proteins that make up your tissues and your enzymes and your cell membranes. And under those conditions, the proteins don't work the way that they do at the surface. Now, animals that live at these extreme depths, like fish and other things, they have evolved special strategies. Either they make chemicals that go in their proteins and stabilise them and stop this happening, or their proteins are adapted so that they need to be bent and distorted by these extreme pressures in order to work properly. And that's why if you take a fish from these depths and bring it seven kilometres to the surface, it dies. And part of that is because its tissues, the, the membranes and the cells don't work properly because the proteins are all going out of shape. Your body would not work properly at those sorts of pressures um, if you were acutely exposed to them, but you certainly wouldn't implode and disappear just like that. You'd, you'd still be the same shape, but your biochemistry wouldn't work very well. Elaine wants to know on Twitter, Chris, why is it that when touching extreme cold or ice feels as painful as when you are burnt with extreme heat? The nervous system is there to protect you. And one of the things it does is to give you a pain signal when you are doing damage to tissue. And extreme heat or extreme cold beyond the range at which tissue begins to be physically harmed, so you're literally breaking cells and releasing their contents, that will trigger pain sensations regardless of whether it's heat or cold. Chemicals will do the same thing. There are chemicals that can cause severe damage to tissue. They will produce also equivalent excruciating pain. So it's actually your body warning you damage is being done to your tissue. Now, the effect we were describing earlier, which is when you suck on a mint and your mouth feels cold or you eat a chilli and your mouth feels hot, there you're not actually damaging your tissue. You're just fooling the nervous system into thinking the tissue is at a different temperature than what it really is. But actually physically exposing a part of your body to an extreme of temperature is damaging tissue because in the case of high heat, you are desiccating or drying cells, you're denaturing proteins and causing cells to, to become destroyed that's damaging tissue. In the case of extreme cold, then you are freezing water in the tissue very fast and that produces lots of very sharp ice crystals that rupture your cells and make them go bang and as a result you're damaging tissue. So in those cases it's extremely painful to warn you. Don't do that, it's not a good idea. Soat or salt? Hello? Hello. My question is, science says that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Now, I want to know, I want the scientists to explain, how is this? Does that mean we have the same quantity of energy at any given time? Essentially, yes. When we started the universe, the Big Bang was a lot of energy, and the energy got converted into matter, material. And that's because, as Einstein told us, E, energy equals M, mass times C, the speed of light squared. So, in other words, energy and mass are interchangeable. Now, when we do something, we are actually converting one form of energy to another. So if I, say, carry a ball to the top of the stairs and then I give it gravitational potential energy because I've done work against gravity carrying the ball to the top of the stairs, the ball has taken the chemical energy in the metabolism in my body and it now has gravitational potential energy. The energy hasn't gone anywhere. It's just in a different form. It's now in the ball 
as gravitational potential. If I push the ball off the top step in the stairs, it rolls down each of the steps, gaining speed as it goes. It's converting the gravitational potential energy I gave it into, at the end of the uh, steps at the bottom, kinetic energy. It's moving. It's also made some air move and uh, made some sound. And because the air's moved, and friction, there'll be some heating effects. All these are energy, but at the end of the day, that energy came from me, my metabolism, which actually came from the sun feeding a plant with light, which photosynthesized the sun's energy into chemical energy, which I then ate and ended up in my body. So you can see energy goes round in a circle, but we're not creating it or destroying it. And so the Big Bang endowed the universe with a whole parcel of energy at the beginning of, of our universe, and that has since some of it's turned into matter. That matter is is the source of, I say, hydrogen in a nuclear reaction, which is powering the sun, and that energy is then ending up in me, as I explained, to make me push my ball down the stairs. So it's quite right. The energy is being converted. It's not being made or not being destroyed. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us, Chris. We'll do it again next week. Looking forward to it already, and thanks for the great questions. Have a great weekend, everyone. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.